0: If I can even set the stage for where I'm, at, where I'm at in this moment in my life in these later years of high school is I have all these experiences as a young boy with you know sexual abuse. And honestly at that point in my life I had never even thought about it that super intensely. I had a dysfunctional home where the normal attitude was anger. Parents got divorced. I was an athlete. I was addicted to drugs out of my own ambition, not just a physiological response to the drugs I was doing. I wanted something from them. I wanted them to satisfy me in some way, shape, or form, and so I'm this, this loner druggie who has all this baggage, but with a deep question in my heart, where can I be satisfied? A lot of things happened to me as a young boy that shaped and impacted how I viewed God, how I viewed people, how I viewed myself, and when I was five, uh, I was sexually abused, by an older boy in the neighborhood. When I was eight, I was sexually abused by a babysitter. And I think those initial moments of my life led me to have a misunderstanding of reality. And when someone takes from you like that, as they you know, did to me, maybe they knew, maybe they didn't know what they were doing. When someone takes from you like that, Somehow you might end up being that person that takes one day, and it's your natural gravity Also, my family life my family dynamics at home were not the best. I love I honor respect my parents Massively they did a lot for me, um, but they got divorced when I was 12, 13. pretty bad divorce They did not like each other and it was pretty obvious and evident that they did not like each other And so as a young man a lot of brokenness most of my emotional baggage, or even conversations, real, honest, raw conversations that you would have with family members and friends, all of that was centered around anger. And so I never had a context in which I lived without intense anger, both looking at people with anger or people talking to me or looking at me with this intense anger. And I remember I'd have these experiences with my, with my brother. I love my brother now. He's a, he's a close friend now. but we i don't think growing up ever had any emotionally joyful experience outside of an uh, an event or something provided for us if we were together it was anger if it was if we were together it was competition it was this you know violence with each other and so I had a pretty dysfunctional uh, childhood in many ways, uh, shapes and forms. Um, I was an athlete though, so I was able to mask it because sports was a good outlet that was provided to me so that I could you know, emotionally connect with something else, take out my anger and my frustration somewhere else. But when I entered high school, uh, I was a short kid, probably about 5'1", five, 5'2", five, and so my ability in sports subsided so I had to find another ad- avenue. And for me, I was a very existential kid. And what I mean by that, I was always thinking deeply. I was always, why am I here? Why am I existing on this planet? And there was always this gaping, massive hole within inside my heart where I was longing to be satisfied. I always knew I was made for joy always knew I was made for some sort of happiness. I don't want to sound like some, you know, fluffy Christian, but I knew there was something of reality that was going to provide satisfaction for me. And so when I was in high school, I was the kid that was super against drugs. I made fun of everybody for it that I knew was already doing it. But my sophomore year of high school, I began to smoke weed and that just led to me being sort of a fiend in many ways. I have a personality that is very uh, aggressive in the sense that if I'm doing something, I'm giving my full self to it. Like my whole being is invested into it. And so as I began to have these experiences with drugs from marijuana to pills to cocaine to Go down to the list, I probably did. As a matter of fact, there was a time that I got grounded because I got caught for some of the drugs I was doing, I got grounded and I would go to Walgreens and I would steal cough syrup. I would go anywhere I could possibly go to find some sort of uh, high, whether that be markers or cough syrup at the store, I would do it. I got chased out of a store by a clerk for thieving, (laughs) Um, whatever you want to say, stealing. I would go down to the same Walgreens almost every time I got grounded and I would do the exact same thing. So I was, I was really into it. And the whole desire was not just for a feeling, it was for satisfaction. I know that sounds cliche, but for me it was this most real thing. After every high I ever did, every high, I thought it was going to provide for me something that was going to satisfy me completely. I was gonna have some experience, some revelation of something that would transform me and bring me into reality that know, that would allow me to know I was living the purpose that I had been made for. And although I'd grown up in a Christian context, meaning you know I went to church every so often, heard all the Sunday school messages, I never personally connected that God would be the place, that Jesus Christ would be the place where I would find that satisfaction. And so after every high, um, after every uh, sexual experience I ever had as a high schooler, I would always say to myself, that's all it was, that's all this is. And it would lead me to go, okay, well I gotta go to the next thing then. Cause it's got it's got to be somewhere, and I remember uh, I would even ask myself, you know, because I had this kind of inner wrestle with what I was doing. I knew it was wrong, but I wanted to continue to justify it in some way, shape, or form. So throughout high school, you know, I'd be I'd be sitting there, I'd be about to smoke or something like that, and I would I would honestly, consciously ask God, God, I think this is okay. Are you okay with this? I think you are, and I I don't know why, but this loud reverberating no would shout in my heart and in my mind. And I'm not saying God spoke to me in those moments, but there was something of that conviction from the Holy Spirit that even in those moments was proving himself to me. I would have experiences like that. And at the same time, I was also a bit of a loner. Um, And what I mean by that is it's not that I was bullied or We all have those types of experiences, obviously, but I kind of had friends that were more in the popular category. And then I also had friends that weren't. I had friends that were athletes and I never fully fit in because I was always feeling like what I was doing was fake, that I was putting a mask on. And I certainly knew that everybody else I was around was putting on the mask. And so, if I can even set the stage for where I'm at at in this moment in my life, in these later years of high school, is I have all these experiences as a young boy with, you know, sexual abuse. And honestly, at that point in my life, I had never even thought about it that super intensely. I had a dysfunctional home where the normal attitude was anger. Parents got divorced. Uh, I was an athlete. Um, I was addicted to drugs out of my own ambition, not just a physiological response to the drugs I was doing. I wanted something from them. I wanted them to satisfy me in some way, shape, or form, and so I'm this, this loner druggie who has all this baggage, but with a deep question in my heart, where can I be satisfied? Thankfully, my parents, although we didn't have the best relationship, decided that towards the end of my high school years that I had uh, I'd obviously been getting in a lot of trouble. You can't do this stuff for very long without getting in trouble with the law or with uh, you know, people around you, your family members. And so my parents basically said, we're gonna kick you out of the house or you can go do a uh, missions Christian training school called YWAM in New Zealand. And I had no clue what a missionary was. As a matter of fact, I thought a missionary was someone who built houses on beaches for poor people. No clue why I thought that, but that's what I thought. And so my assumption was if I go and fake it after high school for six months, my parents are going to get off my back, I'm going to come back, I'm going to do exactly whatever I want to do. I had a girlfriend at the time. I had a job. I had all these things going for me. And the interesting thing is for some reason in my heart, uh, I had a very weird sense that my life was about to be transformed after high school. Everybody, I, I wanted to be a Marine. I don't know why, I wanted to be a Marine. I loved the University of Florida, I wanted to go to the University of Florida. But as high school went on, all of those things put to the wayside, well, everybody's excited about going to the University or going to do whatever they wanted to do. I was a blank canvas of a person. I had no ambition other than I have to know why I'm on this planet and then I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do. And so in the midst of all of the chaos of my family, wanting to kick me out of the house or send me this thing, I had some sense in which I knew my life was about to change after high school and the Lord orchestrated miraculously a scenario for all of this to take place. I got fully funded to go to New Zealand, so I'm about to head there. About three weeks before I'm supposed to head to this Christian program. Wasn't even a Christian. Not even a context for what it truly meant to be a believer. I'm just going because New Zealand is where Lord of the Rings is filmed and it's cool there and I'm gonna be be able to go bungee jump and fake it. And July 4th night, July 5th morning, my friends and I are out and we are doing delinquent-like activities. We are breaking into cars, breaking into garages. We're doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, we're stealing things. And, and I stole a phone at the time that was worth $500. And it's about 3 a.m. We're in a street. We're in a cul-de-sac. One-way street, no way out, no exits. And all of a sudden, no sirens, no lights. Three cop cars roll up down this cul-de-sac. And I'm sitting there like, oh my goodness. And this was a striking moment for me because oftentimes and I think this is an allegory for salvation almost, is you don't realize how much danger you're actually in until you're in the situation, and then you want to be free. And I never wanted to be more free than when I saw those cops get out of that car with tasers put up, hands on the dash, and I'm sitting in the back back of a cop car three weeks before I'm supposed to go to this Christian program. Three weeks before I feel like my life is going to change in some way, shape, or form. And so the police are interrogating me, all this different stuff, and eventually they get to the bottom that I had stolen this phone. It was a felony charge at the time. $500, I guess, is a felony charge for stealing something. And so for some reason, I have no clue why this happened other than uh, we had a minor with us that was, that was with us at the time. Uh, they called the guy's parents, the, the minor's parents. They told him to come pick us up. came and picked us up. He happened to be my neighbor. And so he drops me off at my house. I don't tell my parents. And so three days go by. I'm thinking the cops, they told me they were going to come arrest me, um, detain me in about three days. And two weeks go by. Nothing happens. I think I'm scot-free. I'm on a date with my girlfriend, look at my phone at the end of the day, and I have about 75 missed calls from my parents, about 150 text messages and so I know exactly what happened. I call them. They're, yeah, they're going nuts, man. I didn't even tell them that I had gotten arrested. I didn't even I didn't want to tell them. I'm just going to play it, see what happens. And so as this happens, the cop comes that night. My dad somehow convinces the police officer. He literally tells him these words. My son is going to a Christian program. In New Zealand, it would be far better for him to be there than in a jail cell. Can you let him go to this and he will turn himself in when he comes back? And I kid you not, the police officer said, sure. The police officer left and I'm allowed to go to New Zealand. That didn't solve my problem of being arrested. That actually happened because, this is a little side note, my... um, uh, the police officers were tr- that neighbor had been had been robbed and so the police officers were trying to see if I was If we were the ones that were robbing the neighborhood So they wanted to come and, and see my house see if I had any different things going on I think they assumed that I wasn't the the people that was doing this and so my mom's a firefighter And she's friends with the pol- one of the police officers that arrested me and I found out three days before I leave for New Zealand that the police officers had caught the men who were robbing that neighborhood continually and that they were not going to arrest me even when I came back. They were not going to detain me or press charges in any way, shape or form, which shook me. And it shook me even more later when I actually became a believer and realized what God had done. And even a funny, funny little side note of it is the people that were robbing the neighborhood were classmates of mine. And so this idea that, I know this sounds controversial maybe, but the idea that God would protect me even at the cost of, you know, someone else being caught, I mean, that shocked me. If that didn't happen, then I'm probably not sitting here before you. I'm not a part of the ministry I'm a part of. And so I go to New Zealand. I'm there. I'm on the flight. I'm listening to my rap music. I'm listening to Odd Future. I'm... I'm, by, by all means, right, you got to understand, I cuss like a sailor. I, like I said, addicted to drugs. I have a girlfriend, I'm doing all this stuff with sexual experiences with her as well. And so I'm doing all this stuff. When I get to New Zealand, the first night, a man sits me down. This is before the program even started. His name was Jordan and He sat me down and he could tell I was not a believer. And so he sat me down and he shared the gospel with me. And this isn't the profound encounter that I had, but in that moment, I went and got in my room, got on my knees, and I said to Jesus, if you are who you say you are, I'll follow you. And for me, those words still ring so violently in my heart, because I didn't have this experience where God came to me in my depression or my anxiety, He sent me halfway around the world to isolate me from my context that I was in just so he could have one man share the gospel with me and me say those words, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, I'll follow you. The day after, with no context for needing to break up with my old life, No idea that I need to get rid of all the sin in my life. I called my girlfriend. I said, hey, we're done. And she goes, I knew this would happen. And I go, thank you, prophet. And hung up. And I immediately stopped cussing. I don't know why I stopped cussing. I just did. There's my assumption. On top of that, I got rid of all my old music. I mean, it was, you know, how there's this, you know, people debate. Can I listen to this or listen to that? I didn't care. I had met Jesus. I, I hadn't even had a emotional experience with Him yet. I just knew that He was Lord, that He was King, and He got to dominate my life now, not me. And so I got rid of all my music. I didn't have the debate about what's right, what's wrong. I got rid of concert t-shirts that I knew were attached to some of this stuff. It was almost immediate. And my addiction to pornography, although it wasn't an everyday thing, it was almost immediately cut off. I was just done. Once again, no one told me to put up a, a blocker on, on the websites on my uh, on my internet browsers. It was just simply something had shifted in my heart. But here's where I had the experience with Jesus. I was reading my Bible and once again, guys, I don't have Christianese language. I just am just reading the Bible with hunger in my heart for a new experience and for this new life that I had found. And I get to Psalm 1611, and it says, In His presence is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. And in that moment, it was like an earthquake in my heart, and light bulbs shot off in my head. And I had realized that the satisfaction I was looking for in every other thing was found in this man, Jesus Christ, and that He was not a rule book. And I mentioned this a little bit, but my context because of going to Sunday school and, and being around the church at certain points in my life is that Jesus was a, he was God and he was there. But my context was you go to church once a week, you pretend on that day to be a follower of Jesus and you don't do these five, five things, do these five things and you move on. I had no idea That it was about a personal experience and knowledge of someone. You know, you, you can know President Obama, you can know information about him, you can know information about an athlete, you can know information, but you don't know them. I knew information about Jesus and in this moment I had realized that My experience with Him needed to be a tasting and a seeing. And then when I read that, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, this is an experience. You got to taste chocolate cake. You got to see the sunset in order to experience it. And so in this moment, I can't explain it any other way than I saw Jesus. I tasted Jesus and I realized that pleasure and satisfaction and this motivation that I had for those things was not ungodly, but it was the most godly thing. It was placed in a wrong way. It was placed in sex. It was placed in drugs. It was placed elsewhere when Jesus had made me for joy in Him. And from that place, um, since I was a part of this now missions organization, getting trained, I decided why not devote myself to the greatest thing, not only knowing Jesus, but calling other people to know Him. And I remember in my... uh, Uh, Early years in New Zealand, I heard a story about a man named Count Zinzendorf. And he was a German guy, interesting name, he was a count, which means basically just he was wealthy and owned land. And he was, back in the 1600s, as a young man, he went around to see all the famous art around Europe. And he got to one painting in a certain place, and the name of the painting was Ecce Homo, in Latin it means Behold the Man. And in the painting, it's a, it's a painting of Jesus. You can look it up right now if you wanted to. It's a painting of Jesus. he got a crown of thorns, blood running down his face. And at the bottom it says, this is what I've done for you. What will you do for me? And I was struck in that moment. And it's not that I knew I was going to be some preacher with a ministry like YWAM or Circuit Riders. But it was this idea that I ha- if Jesus went to the cross for me, How could I not give absolutely every fiber of my being to Him? Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, a preacher, says this. He says, is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? And for me, I just knew in those early years of following Jesus that I couldn't play it safe, that I couldn't be comfortable, and those things were... Oftentimes the things that I saw other people around me pursuing and they were adding Jesus to their life. I don't want to add Jesus to my life. He had completely redirected me. And even before I go on to even talk about more about how I entered to to ministry, I just have to say that I can't take claim to having any part of like my testimony. I don't know what what it is. Sometimes I feel like with testimonies, you know, there can be some claim I have on it. I, I have no claim. I I was arrested three weeks before I became a Christian. God pulled me out of that situation miraculously. Other people got arrested in my place. What a gospel story that is. I went to New Zealand. I don't know how I ended up in New Zealand of all places. I had the perfect experience with the most amazing leaders there. I can't have any claim on this, and so even my walking into ministry isn't something that I claim to make some amazing decision. And to start to pursue Jesus in ministry and the preaching of the gospel and, and ministering to a young generation of university students and high school students, I feel like it's all a sovereign act of, of grace for Jesus to place me where I am. And so I'm with Circuit Writers now, which is a ministry based in Huntington Beach, California, reaching university students and high schools. And our whole goal is to call the generation to know Jesus, number one, but to partake in the Great Commission and that you get one life and i get one life we all get one life and so use it to the utmost for jesus christ and his glory so it's my story now derek i want to i want to take it back really quick just a little bit of course um when you came back from new zealand you left one way share. yeah and you came a whole different way talk to me about your reaction of your parents your your friends like what did that look like when you came back you, you wanted to get controversial here it's funny you know a lot of the reaction of people when I decided that I was gonna become minister or a missionary or whatever you want to say um, was interesting because the reaction was actually the opposite of what would have expected I mean I was this drug addict, and but the, now a lot of people around me were basically, you're not going to have a nice 401k, your bank account's not going to be big, what about your future kids, you know, you can't go to that place, you can't do this, it's not safe. And honestly, a lot of the reaction was worse than me being a drug addict. And so when I came back, it was definitely a journey. You remember how I said my context of my relationship with my family was mostly centered around uh, anger and the emotion of anger. That didn't change, and I was definitely not perfect when I came back. I actually only spent three months uh, in Virginia Beach where I grew up back home before I joined Circuit Riders and moved to California. And so one of the interesting things was I was always trying to preach the gospel to my family, and, and I was always trying. This is the true gospel. This is what the the scriptures really about it's about knowing god and having this experience and i did not do it right i was way too intense at times saying things i shouldn't have said i actually had an experience where i got into it with a friend and this friend ended up punching me in the face literally punched me square in the face and then took the drink i had in my hand and chucked it out the window of a car and We just kept going, having this conversation um, and getting into it. And so it was an interesting reaction. Uh, But what I'll say is this, is that most of the people that I was around in that season are now following the Lord. And in some way, shape or form, it's because of some of those conversations that we had. And so the Lord redirected my life from New Zealand to America, specifically because of His sovereign ways. I mean once again I don't have any claim to I decided to be in circuit riders. I decided to move to California. I actually wanted to go back to New Zealand. And the base I was at, the missions base I was at was gonna, you know, train me to plant bases in the Middle East and all these different things. And I was excited to go back and lead and all this different stuff. And but then the New Zealand government sent my visa back and said, uh, you need more ministry experience. In my ministry experience, I needed to work for a church or for another missions organization or whatever. And so they, uh, my mission, my, my leaders in New Zealand sent me to Circuit Riders where I met my wife. And so God used a girl to keep me in America and uh, work with Circuit Riders. And so that's how I ended up where I am now. Now Derek, for people Watching your testimony right now who want to do missionary work, who have a hunger to go out to the nations and are ready to go, and and maybe they don't know, you know, what step to take, and they're seeing circuit riders, and they're like, man, I want to be a part of this. I I just want to go. What can you say to to those people, no matter what their age is? Like, what can you say to those watching right now your testimony? Most important thing that you have to realize when you're deciding what to do with your life and if you're interested in missions or being involved in ministry is the Great Commission, the final words of Jesus Christ are binding on us and our binding on the church of today, which is to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, and preach the gospel. And so, you're, first off, before you decide on, on whatever you want to do and whatever step you want to take, you have to ask yourself, am I extremely passionate about this? Passion is the most important thing in our generation, and, and your passion has to sustain itself in the God given vision given in scriptures, given in Matthew 28, go into all the world. You can be passionate about a burrito one day. You can be passionate about your football team one day. You can be passionate about missions one day. But does your passion continue? That's the first thing. The next step is get around people that you want to be like, get around a ministry that inspires you to missions uh, or to ministry. Get around a furnace of people and catch fire with them and move in that direction that they're moving into. If you isolate yourself and have these dreams and this vision and this goal, it'll never come to be because oftentimes God will bring people into your life to catapult you forward into your calling and into the destiny that God has for you. So those are my two things. You've got to be passionate about it, it's got to be sustained, and you've got to be around a furnace of people that are going in the direction that you want to go. Derek, who is Jesus to you? Jesus, to me, and I think to all of us in some way, shape, or form, is the one who knows me. And that's the most profound thing I think you can find in all the scriptures, is that when God walks into the garden and He doesn't say to Adam, Eve, did you break my law? Did you break my covenant? Did you break this? What did you do? How are you so stupid? Why are you this way? He says to them, where are you? Which is a fascinating question, which means he was looking for them. He was searching for them and they were hiding. And so I was hiding my whole life. And Jesus knew me. He saw me and he picked me. And Jesus is the, the, the one who knows me. And I don't, there's anything more profound than to be known by God and to be desired by God and to be picked by God. So, He's the one who knows me. Any last words for people who are watching your testimony right now? I think most of us could relate to this idea that we're longing to be satisfied. We're longing to find joy. And that's not ungodly. It's actually the most godly thing. It's that oftentimes we misplace it, and we misplace it into areas of sin. Pick one. You can go anywhere with it. And so I believe that if you're watching this and you don't know Jesus, or you don't know how to articulate your testimony or what God's done in your life, it probably in some way, shape shape or form starts with you being unsatisfied in the world, and God coming and wanting to satisfy you through His Son, Jesus Christ by giving you a relationship with Him that's experiential and filled with truth and a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit and His love and every attribute that God has you get to experience in this relationship. And so, He wants to satisfy you with the truth of who His Son is, Jesus.